Today's episode is sponsored by Print Ninja. Ready to bring your board game to life? Print Ninja makes offset printing simple and affordable. Check out their new playable board game sample pack to get started planning your project or quote your game instantly with their unique budgetary calculator. And check out their interviews with board game creators for inspiration and advice. Visit printninja.com slash design lab to get started. And if you mention the board game design lab when you save a quote or reach out with questions, you'll receive a free 5% print overrun with your order. That's printninja.com slash design lab. Now, just on a quick personal note, Print Ninja actually sent me their board game sample pack, and I gotta be honest, it was pretty awesome. The quality was great. The miniatures, the cards, the boards, everything about it was just super high quality, super top notch. And so Print Ninja might be a good option for you if you're looking into uh, publishing your own game. I know they do a lot of stuff for you. And so if you're getting started and you're not entirely sure as far as, you know, all the shipping and all the craziness that goes into the business side of things, they might be a really good company to check out. And so head on over to their website and see if it's right for you. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going above, we're going beyond, we're going to talk about more than a game. What does it look like to create a game that's more than just cardboard and dice and meeples on a table? It's more than that. And we're talking to Malachi Rimpin from Keen Bean Studio and the creator of Itchy Feet, the traveling language comic. Malachi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Gabe. Yeah, man. Really excited that you're here. This is a very interesting topic. Uh, it's not something that comes up a lot in normal day-to-day, you know, game design conversation, but I feel like it's something that probably should. You know, and thinking about how how your game, how your design can go above and beyond the table, you know, can turn into other products, other projects, you know, things that are long-term, more than just one single idea turning into one single game sold on one single shelf, but much more than that. And I know we got some really good uh, insight from people uh, through the Board Game Design Lab Facebook group and got some really interesting things to talk about there. I know your experience as a game designer is, is very interesting. Your journey has been very different from a lot of others. And uh, so really pumped just to kind of get your ideas and thoughts on this. But before we get into the topic, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so I'm Malachi Ray Rempen, and I am a bit of an outsider uh, to game design and board games, I have to admit. Uh, I'm fairly new recently. I mean, when I grew up, we used to play you know, some board games, chess, card games, that sort of thing. Uh, my dad is German, and so uh, we did play a lot of sort of what American kids at the time might have considered odd German games like Mensch ärger dich nicht or Malefiz or uh, Fang den Hut, these like sort of, um, you know, kids would come over and be like, huh, oh, that's weird. Why don't, don't you have like Scrabble? Um, so I did play some uh, German-like style board games for kids anyway when I was a, when I was younger but my passion was always uh filmmaking uh, I've been making movies since I was 10 years old I went to film school um I uh, I had my thesis film after graduation went and traveled to film festivals and won lots of awards and I worked at Sundance uh, film festival after after graduating I was a film projectionist uh, then I started a company and was a freelance writer and director um and now I'm a tutor and program lead at a at a film school here in Berlin um and so that was always the thing I was kind of aiming for but when I first moved to Europe um in 2011 I started this webcomic which was initially just going to be a sort of to uh, meant to be sort of a thing that I wanted to send out to friends and family to sort of kind of chronicle the sort of weird little things that were happening from my experience rather than send an email or uh, start a blog I did a little comic because I used to doodle and do things a lot when I was uh, when I was younger and weirdly like the comic kind of took off and that was called itchy feet um, and it a couple of the strips went viral and then it's just been sort of snowballing since then and it and a bit annoyingly has had more success with an audience uh, for me than any film work I've ever done in my life um, and so uh, that happened. And then 
sort of at the same time, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine who's uh, into board games introduced me to Pandemic Legacy. And that game completely blew my mind. This is like, I had only ever played Risk basically and Monopoly. And like I said, these like little German games. And this was a game that like you destroyed it and like changed it and and it's Pandemic, which is already a great game. So I, I, I was... I was like, wow, this is a whole other world. Uh, we played a lot of other co-op games like Mechs vs. Minions and Robinson Crusoe and Kitchen Rush. Um, but it wasn't until my, then that friend suggested, hey, you know, we were looking, I was looking for ideas to merchandise my, uh, my uh, webcomic because unlike my movie work, I didn't really consider it like anything artistically precious. And I was happy to, to sell out on it. It was just because it was a, thing that I was, I mean, I, now it's become this sort of place for my artistic expression, but at the time I just thought like, well, why not? You know, we'll make all kinds of stuff. Uh, a card game. Sure. How hard can that be? Everyone, everyone likes card games, exploding kittens. They, they had a web comic. They made a card game easy peasy. So I kind of, I knew though that I didn't know how game design worked. And so I reached out to a, a one of the followers of the comic, uh, his name is Maxime Rieu, uh from Canada. And he, he offered, he was also a game designer. Uh, for mobile games and was interested in getting into into tabletop games. And so the two of us spent a year and a half designing a game based on uh, Itchy Feet, the the comic. And initially it was a, it was a, supposed to be a language learning game. It was, uh, that was my, I was like, it's gotta be about language learning because at the time my main following for the comic were, were people who were into language learning, um, learning foreign languages. And um, it, that kind of was where the niche of the comic was hitting. Um, but what we quickly learned is that grammar is not fun. Grammar does not make a good game. And so it became about travel. We kind of pivoted it. Um, and then I launched a Kickstarter in 2017. Uh, we were hoping for 10 grand. And it was literally one of these cases where I was like, you know, I I genuinely hope there are enough of my followers who are interested enough to to pay 20 bucks for this card game. And we ended up raising uh, 113000 uh, dollars it was it was like you know how normally the the kickstarter uh like chart is sort of a bump at the beginning and then it flattens out and then it there's like a another bump at the end and that's what i was fully expecting and it was just diagonal it was just from beginning straight up to the end it was it was crazy it was astounding it was it was something way beyond um what i had expected or, or hoped for in fact i remember this um this episode of this very podcast where you said you were talking to someone about um, Facebook ads and like prepar preparation beforehand and like doing all of this legwork initially. And you said, I guess there's some people out there who you said something like, yeah, th there could be people out there who, you know, don't do any of this work and just sort of out of nowhere, just make six figures, but um, they're few and far between. And, and I just thought like, Oh, that <laughs> that's me. I didn't do any of this work. And I, I feel like a kind of, lucked into this very successful car game and um of course it wasn't all luck i mean i did do a lot of work beforehand i read jamie stegmeyer's blog and um but i genuinely just thought it was going to be for a couple of my uh, comic fans and i didn't realize that they were the ones that kick-started it really because they are the ones that pushed it past that initial funding goal early on and then it sort of picked up steam with people outside of my um outside of my like fan base um, even after that project, though, I didn't really have any plans to to be a game designer or publisher. I had no plans for a career. I was like, this is a one and done. It was great. I'm glad it was fun to do, but I'm, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I don't, I don't make games. Um, I went to Essen and like kind of shopped it around, didn't get any bites. I was kind of hoping a publisher would buy it and take it off my hands and nobody did. So I bought a second run of copies for, of the game. Uh, and then a week later, a publisher dropped out of the blue and wanted to buy it, um, Ginger Fox from in the UK, and then another one in South Korea. So I literally, I just bought another <laughs> warehouse full of games when, uh, when the publisher came in and, and wanted to to, um, to license it, which is great. Um, so my wife, after the game, said, you'd be stupid not to do another one. Uh, and looking back, I kind of realized that a lot of the skills that I had um, that I have now, which relate to board games and board game design, uh, I developed in all these random places beforehand. So like Itchy Feet, doing Itchy Feet, the webcomic, which I do every single Sunday, rain or shine, taught me how to draw. 
um, I always was doing when I was a freelancer as a filmmaker, my own marketing and self-promotion. And also now at, at Catalyst, the film school I work, I also help market and promote the course. So I've got experience with that. I've done my own websites. I've done graphic design. I learned about public relations and customer service through the freelancing and the comic. Um, I've written scripts. It tells me how to tell stories. Um, I've learned project and team management, budgeting, creating my own deadlines and sticking to them from filmmaking. Um, and most of all, creating an experience, you know, uh, and I kind of realized filmmaking is like when you make a, when you make a movie, you are creating an experience for that. It was the part that always attr attracted me to it was you're putting someone on a journey. You're taking them along, you're building a world for them to experience. It's, and, uh, and even when I'm now as a, as a teacher, like when I go into the classroom, I, I'm very, when I plan a lesson, I'm very conscious of the fact that the lesson is an experience and I'm taking these people on this, on this journey for 90 minutes or two hours, however long it's going to be, and the whole course as well. Um, I know you teach, so I'm sure you, you have a, a similar experience with that. Um, and that's, so game design is very similar to that, where you, 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 it's, a, it's like you always say in this podcast, it's a fun machine. You're creating a fun machine. You are creating a machine that creates this experience for them. And, and that's your just job to make sure that, it, that it's well-oiled and that it works right. Um, that's a very important thing to me is uh, that the that the experience is is solid and cohesive. Um, yep. Yeah, so I decided, you know what? If if Ryan Lockett can do it, by golly, I can do it too. <laughs> so uh, I'm certainly no Ryan Lockett, but uh, but I realized I have a lot of the skills I need to start a board game company. So I started Keen Bean Studio, and now I'm working on a new game based on uh, filmmaking, which is near and dear to my heart and to the. To my history as a filmmaker and my love of that and so bringing that to life on the table which i'm really excited excited to do yeah very cool and yeah i would i would definitely caution anyone out there thinking i can be ryan lockett uh i wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> i'd be very careful about driving down that route but you definitely have a lot of the skill sets that uh, allow you to do a lot of these things you know most people aren't very good at design and art like that is very very difficult uh, to be good at but like you said you've been doing this for years and going back to your success with uh, your card game how many years had you done the web comic before you launched the kickstarter for the game that's a great question and that's so true and i tell people this a lot which is that i had been doing it for for six years yeah. for six years i've been doing this comic every single week and i and i rarely asked for anything in return i just put it out there put it out there put it out there partly because it was a habit and partly because i knew that at some point i was going to be able to cash that in, that goodwill that I had kind of built up over all of those years. And I mean, like I never would have launched the card game if I didn't have that following because that following was, um, it was my guarantee that there was going to at least be this minimum number of people. I, I never would have just launched it out of nowhere. And it's what stopped me from ever doing it with films because I never had an audience for, for films that I wanted to make. And so I never would have launched, a, I still wouldn't launch a Kickstarter for films because nobody's going to watch it. Um, and so it's the same thing. It's, it's the same thing with, uh, with Kickstarter where it's like, yeah, I built up that goodwill and that sort of, I invested in the people first. And then I asked them to invest in me back after a good amount of time. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's honestly the hardest part about having a successful Kickstarter project. Now there are people out there that randomly will throw something on, on Kickstarter and then they'll make a bunch of money. And you're like, how in the world did this happen? Sometimes lightning just strikes in, in a certain spot. It is what it is. But for the most part, it's the people who have taken the time and built up an audience, built up a crowd, built an email list, whatever it is. And then, you know, a lot of those people, a big percentage of those, uh, of, of those folks show up and buy your $20 card game. And, you know, this is something I was talking to my students about a while back. Cause we were, we were talking about kind of the new, the new world, right? As, as far as uh, content creation, and you can you can make YouTube videos and be a millionaire, right? That is a, a possible thing. It's rare, yeah. obviously, but it is possible. Unlike you know five ten years ago when it was unheard of, and so they were asking me about you know my my stuff, and I told them I was like, yeah, this this podcast I run, uh, I'm getting to a point where I can do it as my full time job, and it blew their mind. They're like, how in the world can you do a podcast about board games and be able to make money, like any money, let alone like full time money? I was like, well. You know, it's taken years. <laughs> it's not like yeah. I started this thing yesterday. It's taken years to get here. Uh, but yeah, you just build up a lot of goodwill. You provide great content. Uh, you build up following. You help people. And then it, it reciprocates. And then you just kind of go from there. And so we're in an interesting time. 
totally and i think you're exactly on the same train and i think you know this as well that the that the to me for anyone listening who who's interested in doing that and you have an idea of what you want to put out there that people can take for free um that then you can later cash in on um and i said that sounds so opportunistic what i mean is that you can then ask them for a favor in return um which people are more willing to do when they've been getting something for you for free for a long time um is consistency it's it's not quality it it's consistency in my experience anyway that like what matters is that you can you do it on a regular basis and that you are on a predictable basis and you and you can be you're like a you know you're you, people can set their watches to you because sometimes i do comics and they're awful and i just go you know what that's just gonna be this week's comic i'm gonna learn from it next week i'm gonna do better and the more important thing is that it's there and that people know that you're there and they feel you putting out stuff um, than it is that every week is a, is a winner. Yeah, for sure. I would say quite possibly the number one skill for any creative venture, maybe any venture in life just in general, but it definitely with creative is consistency. Like you're saying, uh, this podcast has, has come out every week for roughly at this point, 200 weeks in a row, every single week, 200 weeks in a row, your, your webcomic. Basically every week, as far as I know, six years, or actually more than that, in a row, right? Almost and people, 10 years they, now, yeah. almost 10 years now. So six years when the, the game came out, and now you're 10 years in, you got another game. I mean, that's going to lead to a certain amount of success. Now, obviously, you want it to be as high quality as, as it can be and all that. But I feel like a lot of times people, uh, they freeze and they don't do anything because it's not perfect or because it's, oh, well, you know, it's not 100% unique or, you know, people might not like it or I'm not very good. Like, we can come up with a million different reasons. Why not? But consistency, no matter what you're doing, uh, is what people trust, is what people you know, become kind of reliant on. And again, when you've done something for 10 years in a row, they believe that you can deliver a board game. Yeah. <laughs> right? When exactly. you've done something, in my case, for several years in a row, they believe you can deliver a book about yeah. that same topic. You know, it builds in trust. And so I think that's something to think about, not only in improving as an artist or designer or writer, whatever, but also just in, in building that fan base, building that crowd. And then it kind of leads into what we're talking about today as the heart of this conversation of doing doing more right going above and beyond just a game or in your case just a webcomic that became more right and in my case it's become more than just a podcast it's also become a community and several books and some games that have spawned off of that and so let's get a good little working definition when we're as we're talking about more than just a game what does that mean in your mind like what's your working definition yeah so i would define a, the game I suppose, as sort of the, um, the the experience of like, once you've learned the rules and you play your first turn and then the sort of mechanics of that and the interaction or with the, either between you and the other players in the game and then the, the sort of end state of the game, like, and then you either win or lose. That's that's the game in the way that I'm defining it. And what, what interests me is uh, how can the rest of the experience uh, make the game part of the experience that much more interesting, that much more immersive, and that much more uh, part of the whole experience for the people that are playing it. Because I think it's a mistake to think of your game as just that, that limited bit, which is kind of what we talk about when you talk about game design. Typically, you're talking about from the first turn to the last turn. And in my experience, the uh, the experience of the game is actually a, a much wider timeline it starts from the moment that the that people f hear about it and it ends never really i mean if it's a game that you want people to keep around in their lives for a long time then it's really going to always be a part of their lives so that to me is like that's quite a wide net that you're casting of, of people's lives that's going to be a part of the experience of of the game i think it's I think you're selling yourself short if you think that your game is only the sum of its parts. Yeah. So give me some examples. What are some games that have stuck out in your mind as doing this really, really well? Yeah. Well, I recently started, I got into, I, I backed um, Pax Premier Second Edition by Cole Worley, um, which I've only so far played on the tabletop simulator version, but I've just been amazed at how um, it, it's something following his designer diaries. I mean, it's like, it's like, following someone on another level you know it's like following a chess master and how they play their game i mean it's crazy it's really really there's a really interesting designer of diaries to listen to, to read and um he talked about one in the in the art design of pax Pamir about how he wanted it to feel like a game that kind of existed 
that that was either that was like ba- that was rooted in because the game is set for those that don't know in, in sort of the 1800s in Afghanistan, um, uh, sort of this historical period before the turn of the century. He wanted to feel like an Afghan board game from that period, and so you know, of course, he did his research and he made the components. Why there's a bit of a cloth board, and there are these like sort of um, resin blocks that are used in, in different ways, in addition to the sort of cards you would normally see in a regular game. Um, and that's one one way for sure that that I've really appreciated is feeling like the game reaches into the meta space and bring pulls you in in a in more ways than just here are some components and some ways in which they interact. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle. And it kind of reminds me of The Witcher 3, which is obviously a video game, but inside the, the RPG you know, video game, there's also this card game called Gwent, which they designed from the ground up. And it's uh, it might be based on something else, but I think it was original, uh, where they created a, a kind of a card game, board game type deal inside the video game and it feels real and it, it kind of makes the world seem more alive. And I think anytime you can do that inside your game, I know uh, fire, uh, what's it called? Firefly, the, uh, the TV show, it had a, an odd card game that they never really talked about the rules or whatever. You just see some of the characters playing it in one or two episodes. And so somebody eventually came up with an actual, the actual game and kind of created rules around it and using these cards that you could see in the show. And, and it, you could feel like you were, you know, part of a, a Firefly episode. And I think anytime you can think, in those terms of, okay, what is this world? What are the components they have available? How would they work? What would they look like? What colors would they be? What would the graphic design, the font, all that kind of stuff, I think goes, like we're saying, goes above and beyond just that game. And it's something to definitely think about. It's something that uh, one of your, um, one of the Facebook uh, people on your Facebook group mentioned as well. Danny Cummington said that in his, in his game, he wanted it to feel like the game came out of the world that the game created which is such a great idea that like that it's a sort of this living relic from this alternate future is what he says and uh, i just love that idea that like it's you're getting this box and like already just looking just like holding the box you're already beginning to transport into that world you haven't even opened up the rule book yet you don't know how it plays you don't have no idea like what the mechanics are or anything like that but you're already starting to step into that world i mean that's 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 great yeah, Hit Z Road is another one that I love. The graphic design for this game is phenomenal. Everything about the game looks like someone in this world of a zombie apocalypse basically found an old deck of playing cards that are all you know jacked up and there's like blood on them and they found some old bottle caps. It's, it's almost like you, people in this world found the components necessary to create this game that's about the world that it's set in. And it's just a really cool thing to think about with art direction is how can you use the art, the illustration, the graphic design to, to bring out the theme, but like we're saying, and make it feel like it's actually part of the world that the game is, is in. It's just really inter- interesting to kind of think about that as a, as a designer on the front end versus you know trying to figure it out and shoehorn it in on the back end and kind of have uh, this at the forefront of your mind during that design process it's kind of like it reminds me of like the blair witch project like the film like it's a whole thing of found footage films where it's like you're the, there's a meta story behind the film which is that you're watching something that was cobbled together based on tapes that were found in this bag in the woods or, or whatever like what a sort of different way to bring you in than the typical cinematic experience or the board game equivalent of that and then a couple more that, that have come to mind recently uh, with this kind of going above and beyond. One is Tidal Blades, which is just this phenomenal looking game from Skybound and Druid City Games, James Hudson and Tim Eisner over there. They, they just put together amazing games, but more than just great games, the games look amazing. They go out and they find the best artists that they can hire and they, they put together just art that literally looks good enough to hang on a wall. And so that's what they do. They provide art prints that people will purchase and then print out and, and you'll go to a nice frame store or whatever. And then it will hang on someone's wall above their mantle because it looks that good. And so I think that's another way that you can kind of go above and beyond the game is creating something that's so beautiful that, that people are actually will, will buy it as art to hang on their walls. And so even if they only play that game once a year, you know, it's still hanging on the wall that every time they walk down that hallway, it's there, you know, right there in a nice, big, pretty frame. So I think that's another thing uh, to think about is just how can the artwork stand out? Yeah, well, that that reminded me actually of this game, Canvas, that just uh, was on Kickstarter a little while back. And they they made it, it's this like game where you can uh, assemble paintings basically by putting these different transparent cards together and sort of assembling this, this artwork um, out of these different pieces. And they made it so that the box had a, 
had a, a hole in the back so you could frame the box on your wall. Like literally you could hang it on your wall. It's just a genius idea. It's a great example of exactly that where it's like, it's not just a game about painting. It is a painting and the artwork is good enough that it looks good on your wall. What a great idea. Yeah. And if I remember right, they didn't have like their company logo on the front or the, even the name of the game. Like it literally looked like just a, a piece of artwork and it's got a game inside. And I think, yeah. yeah, that's a really cool way to do it. Uh, another game that comes to mind is this uh, party game I saw a while back that um, Shut Up and Sit Down did this really great review for called Don't Get Got. And basically, it's a party game that lasts throughout your other games. So you can kind of be playing it while you're doing other things. You don't even have to be playing. It doesn't have to be game night. You can just kind of pull these things out. And basically, everybody gets a card or a, a few cards, I think. And it's got these different goals, these objectives, where you're trying to get other people to do certain things. And so it might be, you know, get this person to take their hat off and, and throw it at a trash can. I don't know, something random like that. And you have to do it and you have to be legitimate about it because if they look at you and you, they, if they ask you, is this part of the game, then you've gotten, you've been got. And they, and they, you know, you don't get the points for the objective and things like that. And so it's this really super meta thing that you can just say, all right, guys, here's three cards and you have 48 hours to get somebody else who's playing the game to do one of these random things without them knowing that it's part of the game. It's just a brilliant Thing because it takes the game away from the table and just into normal life. And I find that super interesting. I have this game. It's so great. I love Don't Get Gut. Yeah. So tell me about some of your experiences. Like what, what have you seen? Give me like, and, and because I haven't been able to play it. I've just you know heard about it and seen it. And so kind of give me the, the behind the scenes look. Well, it kind of takes, it kind of it makes your whole life a game. Like it's suddenly everything you do all the time becomes a game. So like you don't know if the other people around you are playing the game or not playing the game. And so it's sort of, it, it is the thing that they're doing right now, it makes you really paranoid. It's like, is the thing that they're doing right now because they're playing the game or because they're just being a normal person? Uh, is the, is, are they like, are they reaching down because of something about the game or are they trying to sneak me into something or they genuinely need my help with something you know it's like uh becomes it just becomes this period of time where suddenly like the whole world is a game and everyone around you can't trust anyone it's very strange it sort of upsets your understanding of your social relationships with each other for that period it's wonderful yeah Uh, another thing i was thinking about for, for this episode when it comes to you know more than a game is also okay could your game become literally more than a game could it become a tv show could it become a web comic could it become a graphic novel? Could it become something else? An RPG game, if it's a board game. Uh, I know Mice and Mystics, I think last year, got picked up by a, a TV network, TV studio, and it's going to become uh, a show. It's going to become, a, I think it's an animated series. Uh, you know, Mice and Mystics, the TV show kind of thing. And I don't know that Jerry Hawthorne thought that, you know, eight years ago, I think, whenever that game uh, came out. But it lent itself to being adapted into other mediums and other genres of creativity. And so I think that's another thing to be thinking about, not something necessary to worry about. I feel like you can definitely go overboard trying to think, okay, this game could be a movie and it could be a TV show and it could be all these. Like, don't overthink it, but it is interesting to at least spend some time thinking through, okay, if this was going to become something more than just a card game, more than just a board game, how would it do that? What, what, what would lend itself to making that easier for a company to adapt this into another form. And I know you kind of did the opposite, right? You, you started with a webcomic and went into a game. And so give me a little bit more your thought process as far as like how to take your webcomic turn to a game. Cause I feel like we can reverse engineer it in a little, in, in certain ways to kind of look at it from the other side. Yeah. I think, I think you're right that you don't, uh, I think that if you want to make sure that there's room for that, but I think there's a danger of overthinking it exactly as you said, because it, I doubt the creator of Mice and Mystics had planned that it was going to be a TV show. In fact, if I remember correctly, he originally was just creating stories, bedtime story games to sort of tell his daughter. And it kind of snowballed into this other thing, which is very similar to my experience with Itchy Feet, where it was like, it was just meant to be this one thing. And then it kind of took on a life of its own. And now it's it's like turning into all of these other things. Um, and so I think there's a there's very little planning that you can, you can't plan for something to, to hit, to be a hit. You can't, if, they, if you could, everyone would do it. Um, so I think you just have to recognize it when you see it and see that opportunity for what it is rather than plan for it ahead of time. You know, if um, maybe there's an opportunity to turn itchy feet into an animated show of some kind, potentially. And I, I would just sort of have to feel out whether or not that was something that 
felt like it, I was going to be pushing against the current with it, or if it just felt like it wanted to go in that direction almost as if it has a, a life of its own. Um, that's kind of how I got into board games to begin with is that I, you know, had this comic and thought of card games and it kind of made sense. And there was precedent that it hadn't, it had been done before. I wasn't reinventing the wheel here. Um, and so that's, that kind of informed the decision that I made to go into this area. And now it's taken on a life of its own and, and sort of redirected my entire life towards this new, this new vocation. Um, so I think in terms of the, the danger that I mentioned is that if you go to a publisher or even to like a Kickstarter crowd and say like, Hey, I've got this IP that I've created and it has the potential to be novels. It has the potential to be comic books. It can be all of this stuff. It's like, well, maybe let them tell you that. Maybe let them be the ones to say, oh, this IP, we could do this and this and this with it too. Let them see the, it, sh it should, the IP, if, if you're going to go in that direction, it should be something where it's self-evident or like gets people, to, other people excited. You don't even have to get them excited. They can see those possibilities just popping off of the page um, rather than something that you have to kind of force on them because then it just feels, then it just feels a bit amateur. Yeah, I think it's something to be said as far as like world building and lore behind your world and the way things work. And are you creating a world that people want to play around in more than just your game? Right. I think Sentinels and Multiverse did this in, in some really cool ways. You know, it's the superhero card game that came out years ago. And now it's become I think it has comic books that they put out that are like actual comic books based on the heroes from the card game. And then there's a video game that's come out recently. There's an RPG game based on it because people wanted to live in this world and they wanted to experience it in different ways. Now, when those guys way back when you know, created that game, they didn't think, Oh, one day it's going to be a view. Like I doubt it. Right. But they created a world that people wanted to stay in even beyond the game. And so I think a lot can be said for world building and maybe not again, going overboard and, and, you know, going everything to the nth degree of detail or not. There's no reason necessarily to do that, but are you creating something that people want to run around in? I think it's another another way to think about it. Well, and also recognizing when they do want to run around in it, like pounce on that. You know, if you start to see that people are creating fan art or they're, you know, uh, one of one of the on Facebook, uh, Sang Fung Lim wrote that I hope one day someone cosplays as a character I create. Like, if you see that happen, then like take notice, sit up. That that's your sign. That's if someone cosplays as one of the characters you've created, like that's IP that is valuable because people it's living in their lives yeah and i think one way you could also think about this and this is something i was watching recently on youtube uh this guy was talking about the difference between film and tv as far as like writing and scripts and world building and he talked about how with a, a movie with a film you know it's got a it's got a an ending right you want to make sure it has an ending and the ending is, is somewhat satisfying and the, the characters have changed and things have happened and obstacles have been overcome but with the tv show you want to write you know, it, you want to write it in such a way you want to create such a world that you could literally go on for 10 seasons or more because that's the idea of TV. You want to have as many episodes, as many seasons as possible. And so you don't necessarily want to go into it thinking about an end. And I think that's a different way to look at board games as well. Are you creating a game? That, this is the game, start, middle, end. Or are you creating something that you know has, has opportunities to go in other directions, whether we're talking about expansions or um, different uh, variables that you can add to the game and make the game different each time and kind of add these new random elements, maybe different decks of cards that fit in and fit out. Maybe you're creating a system. I think the PAX games in certain ways have done this where they've created an idea, like an overarching kind of uh, system that then they can do it with different themes, different games, different time periods, different things going on. I've done the same thing with my Hunted series of games. You know, each game is similar, but very, very different. And so are you creating something that uh, lends itself to being more like a TV show or more like a movie. I think it's another way to kind of think about it. Right. I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword, though, because like with TV, some TV shows, if they don't deliver on everything that was, or if they don't perform in the way that the that the creators had imagined, then often you could get TV shows that end early. And there's nothing worse than getting invested in characters that then just suddenly drop off the face of the earth and you don't have closure or it's rushed. Um, and the same thing can happen in, in board games with expansions. I'm glad you brought that up where like you could, if you don't make sure that the original game also is a complete experience, it's almost like it has to be both. It has to be, it has to be its own standalone thing. And it has to have the potential for expansions and for world expansions so that if that does take off, you can capitalize on it rather than being like, oh, I'm going to give you part one 
of what really is a three-part thing because then if part one doesn't do well enough for you you're not going to have part two and three and then those people that were into it are going to be disappointed and then the thing's not going to exist as a whole so that's the balance anyway that i i'm off thinking about that too like do you do expansions you plan for that ahead of time or do you just make this one thing really good and then kind of at the back of your mind leave the door open for that sort of expansion whether it's game expansions or comics or tv shows or whatever yeah, definitely. It's just something, if you think about uh, Pandemic, like you were talking about Pandemic, pandemic Legacy being just such an incredible experience, but it's built on just the basic Pandemic structure that gets all these really cool things added to it. And I love that Matt Leacock is literally coming out with a brand new Pandemic game every single year with a totally different theme, with a handful of new mechanisms and, and new ways that the game works. But every year he's coming out with something new because he created a system that, that lends itself to being able to do that. And I think that's another thing to think about when you're designing games uh, something that, that I kind of figured out when I, when I designed the first hunted game, like it was a dexterity game and it was, you know, you're running around uh, this mining colony, trying to get back to your spaceship before everything blows up, you know, but the system that was underlying it, I was like, wow, this, this could be used in a lot of different ways. And I was like, Oh, let me, let me do one. That's, you know, you're rolling dice and you're running through a big skyscraper trying to rescue your wife. You know, you're this eighties action hero and, and you're trying to do that. Oh, okay. That works really well. Okay. What if I did this? Or what if I did that? And, and all of a sudden I had this system that I could build, you know, a million other games on top of. And so I think that's another thing to think about. Are you creating a system for your game that lends itself to other ways of doing things? Because if it, if the first one takes off like pandemic did, then all of a sudden you have this brand new, uh, fan base that you can say, Hey, if you, if you like that one, you're really going to love this one. And it's got Cthulhu, you know? And so you can do yeah. a lot of really interesting things that way as well. It's just, again, it's just another angle to think about, not something to overthink, not something to really just put all your effort in, and eggs in that same basket, but just something to think about. Man. I really hope Matt Leacock loves pandemic because otherwise he's <laughs> in a nightmare right now. I mean, that's the thing. Like it's same with like doing itchy feet for 10 years and with no end in sight, like I do love it, but I'm glad I do because if I didn't, I'd be tied to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's just definitely something to think about because like you're saying, you might get into it and go, wow, I, I hate this. You know, I often wonder if uh, characters on certain TV shows, you know, like Grey's Anatomy is going into this like 16th season or something like that. Like if you don't love being Meredith Grey, then uh, hmm, that's a tough you're deal because then you're balanced. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, but yeah, and that's actually why a lot of people get written off of shows. They're like, you know, I'm going to go do something else. So yeah, y'all just kill me and uh, I'll see y'all you know, later I'll come back for the flashback episodes, but uh, I'm, I'm done. And so, yeah, it's another thing to think about. Uh, what else, anything else come up in either the Facebook conversations that were going on or anything else in your mind as far as, you know, going above and beyond a game? Well, so uh, f for my initial game, my, for Itchy Feet, the, the travel card game, I, I came at it kind of as, as I said, kind of as an outsider. And so I didn't, I wasn't thinking in the mindset like uh, of just that, this is only going to be for people who play card games like that. That wasn't really who I was aiming for. Um, and it, it is a, a lightweight sort of party games anyway. So it's not really for board gamers, but I think that there's a, there's a tendency for people to just get trapped in the, in the moment that the game is opened and then the moment it's put away and just imagining that those are the walls that you have to play in. Um, when actually, you know, I was only, I was aiming for this to be a travel thing. And so when I launched the Kickstarter, a, a lot of, of the project was based around uh, my idea of what I thought of a successful Kickstarter was at the time, which wasn't just a game. It was like a gadget almost. Like I saw all of these Kickstarter, not game related stuff, but just other things. I saw, you know, people love on Kickstarter, like, Oh, it's a bicycle that also is a coffee machine or it's a, it's a, it's a ball that, um, that, that turns into a, a car, you know, all of these sort of, People like things with lots of pockets on them. This bag has a thousand pockets. It's the perfect travel companion. So I thought, okay, well, what's the like card game equivalent of having a bunch of pockets and zippers on something? And um, so I, I did a couple things into the design to try to, to make it more a part of your travel experience. The first being the most obvious being that it's small. It's a deck of cards. But now I know, and I'm glad that I sort of lucked into this, that like the best way to start making a game is to start with a card game because... It's a small, cheap, easy to produce thing. It's standardized. So it shows that you can do it. But at the time I was just thinking like, well, what's easy to travel with? A deck of cards. Um, I made the, I had stretch goals to make the, the box sturdier and the cards really like really thick cardboard, which you don't really normally see with small decks of cards and uh, to have it be like as travel proof as possible. So when you're playing it in a, 
bar somewhere in Prague, you know, and you spill a beer on it, it's not going to ruin the game. Um, and then I did stuff to the game itself. Like I have, we have postcards that are in the game, which mechanically just serve as like an alternate win scenario. So there's five of them in the game. And if you collect uh, or six, and if you collect four out of the six, you win instantly. So it becomes this sort of like sub economy within the, within the game. And, but the postcards look like actual postcards and you can, we encourage people to write notes on them and have people when you're playing out, when you're traveling and you're in a hostel or you're on the train and you meet a random stranger and you play with them, like have them write something down, have them write their phone number or address or just a little note to you about this time that you shared together. And so then the postcard, anytime then after that point you play with it in this game, like it'll always be this reminder of, uh, of this time you had with these people, um, which was an idea that we really loved, Maxime and I. Um, our, our mission for the beginning was to make something that brought people together. Um, and that was just part of how that manifested. Uh, and then the other thing that we did um, was we added at the bottom of cards, uh, of 56 of the cards, on the bottom uh, right-hand corner, we added the, you know, diamonds, clubs, queen, king, two through 10 sort of suits on it so that you could use these cards to play regular card games if you were sick of playing it you beat the travel game that way you don't have to bring more than one deck of cards you just have to bring it you beat the travel game so again we were thinking like this is something that's going to be a part of their, their travel experience what are ways that this game can lean into that can make that easier can make that uh even better for them rather than just being a game that has a travel theme slapped on top of it Absolutely. I love the idea of almost like a utility knife or a Swiss army knife of, of, of a game, right? Where it's got more than one use and your game could also be just a normal deck of cards. Uh, I interviewed John DeCampos uh, recently for the podcast and he's got this game that originally started off. He's a, he's a big Magic the Gathering fan. And so if you've ever played Magic and you've ever run a deck that had lots of little minions that came out, these little one, 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 uh, you know, minions that go out on the board. Normally you have to use tokens or like, I think my friends and I, we just use pennies, whatever, to represent these little monsters. Well, he wanted to create something that was like an accessory that was like these really cool little, you know, one inch tall um, miniatures that were interesting and that were kind of cool looking that you could just have a big bag full and say, all right, I've got 10 minions coming out and you draw 10 of these cool little creatures and you put them out there and they, they look good. They look a lot better than a bunch of pennies on the board. And then he thought, well, what if I turn these little dudes, little miniatures, into an actual game and kind of create a game around them? And so his whole thing started off as an accessory for Magic and then turned into a board game. It's like, well, you can buy these just by themselves and use them for Magic or whatever you know card game you want to use them for. Or you could buy the big you know, board game experience as well. And I think that's a really cool thing is come at it from one angle and, and then offer another angle as well. Because, I mean, we live in a, a time where, I mean, there's no shortage of games. There's no shortage of things you can go to the, the game store and, and buy new experiences. And so how can your game stand out and creating something that offers more than one way to play or more than one way to use those cards or use those tokens, use those miniatures. You know, I know a lot of people will buy the big hundred dollar, you know, Kickstarter projects that have a million miniatures, not because they want the game. They could care less about what the game is, but they play D and D and they want to use these really cool monsters, these giant dragons and snakes and all these crazy soldiers and stuff like that. They just want to use them in their D and D game. And they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's a hundred bucks. Uh, I'm going to throw your game away. You don't care about the rule book. Don't care about any of this stuff. Forget the cards. Give me these really cool pieces of plastic. Cause I'm going to use them in my you know RPG game. And so I, that's just another thing to think about. Huh? I never considered that's why mini games are so games with minis in them are so popular. You're probably dead right about that that's that's genius and that's the thing you you should if you they know that so they're leaning into that and they're using that to help boost the sales of their game and make it more attractive and appealing to people if there's something else in the game that can really um bring them in that's just not just the game you're providing but is something they can make use of in other parts of their life or even um or even just have a different experience like for example uh this the the game i'm developing now and it's just on kickstarter right now roll camera which is a filmmaking game it's about making a film shot by shot kind of what the process of shooting a film but i'm fully aware that like people like are going to be interested in the game because they like movies or they like to make movies or, or they just like movies in general which is why in the game there's this um like once the game is done and you have five scenes in the editing room on the board is printed these story cues so that after the game, you can sort of read out this story and read the, from these scenes that you've created and the scenes don't have any text on them. So it's up for your interpretation, but the board has little textual cues, which are built so that your story will have some sort of 
a logical sense. It'll have an arc to it. And it's not just sort of random stuff happening. And that is what players have playtesters have consistently said is like one of the best parts of the game afterwards is like, you actually made a film and here we can read it out. We can, we can see it. And it's, it's, it's the, in our heads anyway, <laughs> uh, well on the board and then kind of read out the story and what goes on. And it has no bearing on the, on the actual gameplay. The game is over, but it's uh but it's a part of the experience of the, of the, of the theme. It's part of the experience of the, of the game uh, writ large, the sort of meta game. Um, so much so that I'm thinking now of, um, and by now, but by, by the time this, uh, this podcast airs i may i may have already decided but i'm i'm thinking of creating a, a place online where people can actually record videos of themselves telling the stories they created in the game upload them online and then people vote on them if it's on a platform like facebook and then the highest voting ones get nominated to win awards and then i'll send them something as like a like a bonus playable award card or something like that where they can so then again it's the game is existing beyond they've long finished the game but now that the, the the sort of uh, the aftershocks of that game are, are continuing to be a part of their life and continuing to be something that um, that touches them on an ongoing basis. Um, so I think that that's a big part of it as well is like, what about the, the theme of the game can you bring to life in other ways than just the mechanics or the artwork? Right. And I think another thing to think about, especially in today's world, is how can you create a Kickstarter experience that goes above and beyond just the game, you know, and what you're talking about, you know, if you could put on your Kickstarter page, basically a way for backers to download, you know, certain images and then they can put them together and then create their own little video and then upload it, you know, links to things in the comments or things like that, just to keep interaction going or send you a link. And then you post your five favorites and maybe people get to vote on vote on them and the winner, you know, get some extra add on for the game or something like that, just to create more of a Kickstarter experience and really bring, backers in and kind of create this community of like-minded people. I think that that's where a lot of Kickstarters uh, do do really well is when they create an experience, not just, hey, buy my game, but hey, come enjoy the next three weeks of this project and we're going to have some fun together. I know Jay Cormier with uh, Mind MGMT, he, the, he created this game that's a, a hidden movement game. And so as part of the campaign, he reached out to a lot of other Kickstarter creators and with their permission, he would hide little images or Easter egg kind of things or little answers to clues and things like that on all sorts of other websites and Kickstarter projects. And throughout his Kickstarter campaign, you could, you would have to go on these other pages and find uh, the clues and find the answers and then come back together and then talk to the other members, the other backers, and, and try to figure out, okay, what do you think this means? And where do you think they're going? And, and it was a game within the Kickstarter campaign itself. And I thought that's brilliant because it's getting people to interact with you, interact with your campaign, get the word out, you know, sp uh, spread links and, and share and comment and all these things. I think that's, that's phenomenal. And I think anytime you can do stuff like that, it's going to be really helpful to stand out because Kickstarter is, is so noisy. There's so many good games. There's so many amazing projects with amazing art and beautiful miniatures and things like that. So how can you stand out? Well, I think creating an experience that goes above and beyond your campaign is a good way to do it. Yeah, how can you make a Kickstarter campaign that's more than a Kickstarter campaign for a game? Because, you know, a lot of them do that. A lot of them, not not what uh, Jay Cormier is doing, which I, th I thought was genius, but the opposite of that, which is just sort of, here's my game. I This is the rule book. Um, here's some reviews. Please buy it. You know, rather than being like, how can, you know, bring me in a little bit, you know, sell me, bring hook me a little bit pull me in, like, show me what's, what, why it's, it's more than just a collection of, uh, of some cards and mechanics, um, something that I'm going to actually experience. I'm going to, I can get immersed into, um, he did a great job with that. Yeah. I mean, Kickstarter, if we're just being totally honest, it's become a store, it's become a pre-order store. And so that's how a lot of people are approaching it now. Like you're saying, here's the game, here's what it looks like. Here's the list of components. Here's a few reviewers or previewers who looked at it. Here's the price, you know, here's the delivery date give me your credit card number. And that's like literally all it is. And that's fine. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But if you're trying to go above and beyond, how can you create an experience? How can you take your game, you know, and take the page, take the project, take the comment section, whatever, and do more with it? I think just, to, I think that's the next level of Kickstarter project at this point is really cre creating a community, creating a fan base before the game even releases more than just a pre-order storefront. Uh, I think it's just something to, again, just think about not, not overthink, not try to put everything into it, but just a different angle 
to be aware of is, you know, creating a product and understanding the product starts with the Kickstarter campaign. It's not just starting uh, with the, the, the cardboard and, and the chips and the meeples and all that. It's, it's the whole package. And so let's, let's kind of travel down that road. What are some ways that as a product, you can also be thinking about experience. You can also be thinking about uh, more than just the, the game that's inside the box. Well, it's funny, you know, you mentioned Kickstarter as a store and people treating it like that. I think that's definitely true to a certain extent. Uh, and I think anyone who, who runs a store or who's familiar with stores, or if you've been in a store you really like, knows that the experience of being in a store is more than just, here's my merchandise, please buy it. There's a whole lot of psychology and thinking that goes into the experience of being in the store of like, what does it look like when you walk by it? What part of the street are you on? First of all, the location, like where are you going to walk into it when you first, what's the first thing you see when you open the door? What does it smell like? What are the textures in the, in the store? What are the bookshelves made out of and, uh, or, the, or the glass cases that your products are in? Like all of that is part of the overall uh, experience of what is the first thing that someone says to you when you walk in? All of that stuff is part of your experience of the product they're selling. Um, so I think that it's it's the same with a Kickstarter campaign, and it's the same with the game. It goes all the way across the, the, the first time that they hear about it. That is your game. When someone sees the first ad for it, that's your game. That's their first experience of it. They are they are now experience, they're stepping into the world of your game right now, and they don't know anything about it. They don't know that that's happening. You don't know that that's happening when you're being advertised to, or when somebody says to you, oh, there's a game you got to check out or there's a movie you got to see that, but it is that now you have stepped into that experience. And so you need to think about what is it that the game is going to offer somebody before they've ever, they know that the game exists, you know, at the first point. And then, um, so for example, there are games which the, uh, I, I see a lot of games in which there isn't really a, a clear central tension. This is something I've, I've started to realize about game design. I'm, I'm very new to it, so but it's just something for me. Of, it's kind of becoming interesting. Is that like uh, a good game? It'll be obvious from the from the sort of theme and the title what the what the game is like. So you know, an obvious example is Robinson Crusoe. Is a game where it's like okay, I'm going to be stranded on a desert island and I'm going to have to survive. Like, that's obvious from the name. We get it. And you get the tension. You already get the problem. You've already been presented with, like, can you survive? You, you're already thinking about that before you even know how the game works. Whereas if you have a, if you have a, a very abstract game like that just has, a, you know, like patterns of, of some random thing, then it's like, well, I, sure, there, there might be mechanics under there, but it's gonna, it might take me a few more steps to kind of get to that point. Um, it might take a few more say, like uh, people telling me it's a really good game before I go, okay, I'm going to play this game, uh, you know, that, that is about these sort of blue dots. Um, Azul is a great game where you might initially think, oh, it's an abstract game. It doesn't have any initial, it doesn't have any underlying tension to it. But But actually, if you you know, already the idea of like tiles of these, like this, like Portuguese style tiles, you're already thinking about patterns. You're already thinking about laying them down and, and certain ones possibly even breaking or ones not working or not fitting. That's tension. That's, that's a problem. You've been presented with this. And so it's a very cleverly uh, chosen theme, I think. So that's one way you can start to, when you're thinking already in your game design about what people are going to think, think and talk about it before they even know how it works. Right. And I think another thing to bring up is somewhere in game experience as, and also movie experience is the idea of suspension of disbelief, right? You're trying to get people into a zone where, okay, they know that what's happening on the screen or what's happening on the table is not real. Th those aren't real zombies. Either they're pieces of plastic or they're an actor with a bunch of makeup. Okay. They know that, but you're trying to get them to believe just for a moment, just for a, a little, you know, in a, certain ways that they are they're, 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 they are the hero or they're watching a person who's a hero trying to you know, blow up zombies and, and shoot a shotgun and save the day, whatever. You're trying to get them to suspend disbelief. And the way you do that is by creating a, a great product. You know, if you're 
uh, doing a movie, you want to make sure that the sound microphone, the boom, isn't in the shot, right? You want to make sure that the makeup looks believable enough. You want to make sure that the people are talking and they're not just talking like robots, the reading from a script. You know, you want to make sure everything is is leading uh, the audience to feel like they're actually there. And for a board game, you want to make sure all the components are nice enough to where people aren't going, oh, wow, this is, this is really cheap. This is actually terrible cardboard. Oh, look at these cards. They're all weird sizes and they're warped. Like you don't want them to, to be pulled out of the experience by poor components or poor, a poor product. Basically. I think that's another thing to think about is how are you going to bring people into this experience and make it more than just a game, but you can do that with the art graphic design and the quality of what they're actually, you know, playing with or looking at and you know, that kind of thing. I, I love that you bring that up because I, this is something I tell my students, my, my filmmaking students is that your job as a director you are a magician. Film is a magic trick because people go in there just as you do when you go to a magic show and you know it's not real. You know that. We, we've agreed upon that. And yet you are paying money to be lied to on purpose. And so your only job is to not let them see the strings. They can't see the magic trick because as soon as you know how the trick works, it doesn't, it suddenly, it's not worth it anymore. The whole, the whole thing falls apart. And, and I've just realized, as you said that a board game is the exact same way. It is, it is a magic trick. You are, you are suspending their disbelief with this perfectly arranged uh, combination of theme and mechanic and experience and components and all of these things working all, all together in harmony with each other. It's, uh, one of your, one of the comments in the Facebook group from Sarah Ship said exactly that. And I, I totally agree because you are, and, and it's interesting you mentioned high quality components, and I think that's important, but I think more important is that it is that it feels coherent because you could have, in theory, I don't know of a game that does this, but maybe, maybe you do, um, which you could have a game which had poor components on purpose because it was a ratty theme, because maybe the theme was about stuff that wasn't so high quality. I don't know. You could, you could lean into that and then it would be suddenly it would be part of the experience of the game and it would lean into that. Whereas if you had a game that took place in the, I don't know, in the, in the apocalypse and everything was super clean and shiny and very high quality, it might actually take away from the experience a little bit. Yeah. Another game that does this really well. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's a game that's it's got this like camping theme, a campfire kind of theme. And so when you open the box, uh, the components actually smell like fire. They smell like a campfire. And so it's funny because you open the box and you're immediately drawn into what the theme is just based on the smell alone. And, you know, and science tells us that smell is the most uh, is the sense that is most related to memory. Right. And so as soon as someone smells that, they're probably going to go back, you know, 15 years ago when they were with their family out, you know, cooking hot dogs and hanging out by the lake and, and you know, camping, whatever. And you're in that same zone with the experience for this game, which is also got this camping kind of vibe to it. I think that's another way you can just do things that are interesting, that are different to make the game, again, more than just what's on the table, make it an experience, make it more than a game. That's genius. I love that. It's, and it's true. It's, it's, you know, you have five senses and um, tabletop gaming is, it's very tactile, but there's a bunch of other senses you can trigger as well. And, you know, it's worth thinking about. For sure. Anything else that stands out in your mind, anything else you want to discuss any, any other topics or, or ideas as far as, you know, going above and beyond just a game? I just, I, th I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is thinking about your players as, full human beings. <laughs> They're not just board gamers. They are people like you and me with lives that, uh, th that do all kinds of different things and have hobbies in different areas. And uh, think about how your game can reach out to them in those places too. It's not just, it's not limited to just the table when they open it up. There's there's other places where potentially you can, you can make them want to be a part of it or bring your game or your IP or whatever else that's attached to your game, bring it into into other parts of their lives as well. If you can facilitate that, then then you've made your game more than a game. Awesome. Well, Mal, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. You've got a game on Kickstarter right now. We talked about it a little bit. Tell me about Roll Camera. Uh, yeah, so Roll Camera, the filmmaking board game, is my upcoming game, and it's on Kickstarter right now. And the whole idea is to bring the beautiful agony, stress, and, of course, fun of making movies to the table. So each player takes a major role, like director, producer, cinematographer, and then you work together, or solo, works as a solo game as well, to write, storyboard, shoot, edit, and premiere a film, scene by scene, before 
time and money run out. Uh, it's a dice worker placement game. So the dice are your crew members and you assign them to various actions like building the set or resolving the constant problem cards that are plaguing your production. Um, you also Each player also has idea cards in hand, which they can pitch in production meetings um, all at the same time. And that way you sort of work together as a team to solve the puzzle of each turn, how you're going to get through the film. And at the end, as I said, uh, you have a full story that you can premiere scene by scene, uh, which is a really satisfying reward for all of the work of putting the film together. Um, and there's lots of other things that I've put in there to try to make the game more than just the mechanics of a game, but a full sort of filmmaking storytelling experience very cool well again really appreciate you coming on the show good luck with the webcomic and the filmmaking and the kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now gabe thanks so much this has been so much fun thanks for listening hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting? <laughs>